Hey y'all, and welcome back to Do The Kids Know. It's Prakash here to let you know that we are still on hiatus, but uh, while we take a break to gather our thoughts and work on some new episodes, uh, we wanted to leave you with a rerun of uh, one of our early episodes from season one entitled Environmental Racism. A couple days ago, we had the one of the hottest November days that's ever been recorded, something along those lines, and so... I thought it'd be fitting to revisit this episode to discuss how and why people of color are often at the brunt of facing the effects of climate change. So, um, yep, stay tuned to listen to that discussion or to re-listen to it, and we hope to see you soon with some new episodes. Until then, stay in the know. Bye. And welcome to Do The Kids Know. That's a show where we talk to you about race, media, pop culture, politics, question mark, (laughs) (laughs) and things like that in places like here, which are southern colonial states, particularly Canada, spelled with three Ks because white supremacy is in our veins. Oh my God. And by our veins, (laughs) I mean the veins of the nation state. Uh... <laughs> um, so, uh, Kristen, on a scale of, I have no idea, chicken nuggets. How many are how many are you ordering from McDonald's today? <laughs> Do you know you can, you can buy them in packs of forty? <laughs> I was gonna say, what's the biggest number you can order at one time? <laughs> um, you can order multiples, but I think I think forty is maybe twenty or forty. I don't know. Uh, I I don't. Oh. Why did you ask me a food question? A, I love food. B, I'm not doing great. So whatever is the largest number you can order at one time. I feel that. Food is like 100% has been my quarantine vice. Yep. Like I don't uh, I don't smoke. I don't really drink. But takeout, ooh, baby. All the time. Get in me. All the time. Serotonin on delivery. Mm-hmm. How nice. With like the least amount of provocation. <laughs> I will order some takeout. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, every time I'm like, hmm, I'm hungry. Should I order takeout? Then I like text you uh, or a friend, and it's immediately just yes. like, yes. I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna have to do it. The council has spoken, yeah. and who am I to uh, say no to authority? Exactly. <laughs> Don't they teach us all our lives to submit to authority? You're just doing that. Yeah, it's like the um, the council of the group chat. Yeah, we have spoken. Exactly. You have to order all the takeout all the time, always. <laughs> all right. So. Right. <laughs> Another episode. <laughs> Here we are. And I think this might like conclude kind of the arc that we've been producing the last couple episodes. But when we started prepping this, the global youth climate strike had uh, just taken place. And with all of the climate activism that's been gaining momentum and gaining international news coverage in the last few years, hopefully by now, y'all know that we've gone past the rhetoric of this phenomenon just being simply climate change. <clears throat> And that this is actually and truly a full-on climate emergency or climate catastrophe. Insert special effects sounds. Thunder. (laughs) Thunder, (laughs) lightning. lightning. Uh, Nuclear bombs. (laughs) 
We've already been knowing what this looks like. Mm. It's already happening. Mm. Wildfires, extreme weather events, hurricanes, melting ice caps, rising sea levels, massive environmental degradation, mudslides, desertification, coral bleaching. And this is just off the top of my head. Mm. And with all this comes this term you probably heard, climate refugees. Mm. Which brings us to our topic today as an extension of our recent episodes on refugees and economic colonialism. This week we're asking, do the kids know about environmental racism? So let's break down how we go from climate change to climate refugees to environmental racism. So the term environmental racism was coined in 1982 by Benjamin Chavez alongside the rise of the environmental justice movement as, quote, racial discrimination in environmental policymaking, the enforcement of regulations and laws, the deliberate targeting of communities of color for toxic waste facilities, the official sanctioning of the life-threatening presence of poisons and pollutants in our communities, and the history of excluding people of color from leadership of the ecology movements, end quote. Whew, Jesus, that's still happening. No, baby. Still happening. 40 years later, Mm. here we are. Here we are. This definition was expanded upon by Dr. Robert Bullard, who succinctly iterates environmental racism as referring to any policy, practice, or directive that differentially affects or disadvantages, whether intended or unintended, individuals, groups, or communities based on race or color. But before we get into this, we need to talk about the historical erasure of climate change knowledge. (laughs) Because if this movement has been happening for nearly 40 fucking years, why is it taking so long for any action to take place? Per a catch? Oh, baby, buckle in, because we're about to tell a story. <laughs> Buckle sound effect. Click. <laughs> <laughs> <The> click. <laughs> uh, can you tell us Friday and then we're uh, delirious? We are tired. All right, so, journalists Neela Banerjee, Lisa Song, John H. Cushman Jr., and David Hasemeyer from Inside Climate News a Pulitzer Prize-winning, non-profit, non-partisan news organization dedicated to covering climate change, energy, and the environment, released a series of nine reports in 2015 that very clearly outlines the sequence of events that proved that people knew about the devastating effects the fossil fuel industry was having on global climates from as far back as the 1970s. Oh, God. What had happened was, in 1977... ExxonMobil, who is currently the world's largest oil company, who at the time was just Exxon. Also, if you buy your gas at Esso, mm. this, is, this is who they mm-hmm. are. They had a senior company scientist named James F. Black, who gave a presentation outlining that carbon dioxide from the world's use of fossil fuels would warm the planet and could eventually endanger humanity. Oh, God. This is back in 1977. He also stated that at the time, so 43 years ago, that there was a general scientific consensus that the most likely manner in which mankind is influencing the global climate is through carbon dioxide released from the burning of fossil fuels. So we've been knowing. Mm. We've been new. Mm. A year later, in 1978, he warned Exxon that independent researchers estimated a doubling of the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere would increase average global temperatures by 2 to 3 degrees Celsius and as much as 10 degrees Celsius at the poles. Uh, and if you remember those that report that came out, I don't know, what, what is time, like a year ago, two years ago, <laughs> that um, we went up by two degrees, mm. uh, end of days, essentially, mm-hmm. that there's, there's no going back. 
So they knew this in 1978. Mm. Desertification and heavy rainfall were also risks of this. He also noted that some countries would benefit, but others would have their agricultural output reduced or destroyed. And that there was a 5-10 to year window, beginning in 1978, before the need for hard decisions regarding changes in energy strategies might become critical. Mm. So again, 43 years ago, Mm. they knew that they had a max 10-year-long window Mm. to make changes. And they didn't do... To prevent what happened now. They didn't do nothing. I mean, they did something. Kristen, why don't you tell us? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So what happened next? Exxon spent around a decade doing in-depth research on carbon dioxide emissions and its environmental impacts. So they spent the 10 years that they were told they had doing research. The effects of this work should have been for them to change their practices, divest into renewables, or do literally anything to stop the environmental devastation they were contributing to. But, of course, we know the motto of big oil and the like, which is profits over people. So in the late 1980s, they stopped investing in climate research and reinvested in perpetuating sentiments of climate denial. They activated their billion-dollar industry to fabricate feelings of doubt about the legitimacy of scientific evidence of global warming. Evidence their own scientists brought forward literally a decade prior. They lobbied to block federal and international action to control greenhouse gas emissions, and they're a big reason why... Over 30 years later, there is still so much fake news, misinformation, and misunderstanding about the human impact of climate change. In more recent interviews, spokespeople from Exxon have said that the pronouncements James F. Black made were not convincing. The research was inconclusive, and it's not fair to cherry-pick quotes from their archives meetings, etc. And there's a short Forbes article from a former climate researching slash big oil employee that supports the statement that in 1977, it wasn't so cut and dry. But we're calling bullshit because regardless of what they thought in 1977, their actions in the 40 years since show that they do not care about their environmental impact mm-hmm. at all. And several times on the national and international stage, Exxon continued to deny climate change when the evidence was literally right there in front of them. This includes in June 1988, when NASA scientist James Hansen told a congressional hearing that the planet was already warming. Exxon remained publicly convinced that the science was still controversial. And this is after they had done their own research for 10 years. Furthermore... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now we're gonna we're gonna quote from scientific american here <clears throat> experts agree that exxon became a leader in campaigns of confusion by 1989 the company had helped create the global climate coalition disbanded in 2002 to question the scientific basis for concern about climate change it also helped to prevent the u.s from signing the international treaty on climate known as the kyoto protocol in 1998 to control greenhouse gases exxon's tactic not only worked on the u.s but also stopped other countries such as china and india from signing the treaty Mm-hmm. And we'll get, back, uh, we'll get back to this, but also Stephen Harper mm. withdrew Canada formally from the Kyoto Protocol in, I believe, 2011. Mm. That mm. I have many words to call him. Anyway, continuing this quote. <clears throat> 
even more evidence of nefarious intentional climate denial on the part of Exxon was revealed in the investigation by the Union of Concerned Scientists, love that name, published in July <laughs> 2015 called the Climate Deception Dossiers, also love that name, which we'll link in the show notes. Honestly, it is juicy. Ooh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> in it, Union President Kenneth Kimmel notes that included was a memo of a coalition of fossil fuel companies where they pledge basically to launch a big communications effort to sow doubt. There's even a quote in it that says something like, victory will be achieved when the average person is uncertain about climate science. Don't you love that? Don't you love that? I love it so much. You know, we love seeing nefarious big business Mm. trying to control the minds of the people Mm. in order to perpetuate their own profit making. Yeah, people don't matter. Let's make money. Let's make so much money. Let's ruin the world, but it's okay because we'll be rich. (laughs) At least when the world is burning, we'll have air conditioning. Um, Since then, Exxon has spent more than $30 million on think tanks that promote climate denial, according to Greenpeace. Lovely. Not only have they manufactured climate denial after they spent 10 whole years being like, ooh, we should look into this climate thing that we're perpetuating, (laughs) but also they've perpetuated and manufactured a dependency on fossil fuels when we could have literally divested into renewable decades ago. Decades, guys. Longer than both of us have been alive. Yeah. I'm in my 20s. (laughs) (laughs) But they had over 30 years to do this. (laughs) I don't know what Kristen said. You're in your 20s too. (laughs) We're the same age. (laughs) Oh, are we? I thought you were younger than me. Aren't you you 21? I don't. (laughs) 24. Oh, right. Sorry. Oh, my God. There is a lot more history and drama to go down on this road, but I think I'm going to stop there. (laughs) The point of this, which we'll reiterate now, is that there is no scientific basis to continue denying climate change. It's here. It's happened. It's been happening. Okay. And as James F. Black said in 1978, some regions will benefit from continued fossil fuel extraction and use and others will face the consequences. So, I think y'all kids already know, but let's discuss. Who are the ones suffering? Richard J.T. Klein, a research fellow from the Stockholm Environment Institute, poses an interesting question in his article identifying countries that are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change, an academic or a political challenge, Mm. which we'll link in the show notes. It's not very long, but in sum, while the word vulnerability is not well-defined in terms of uh, policymaking or really any kind of like legal definition, uh, it is referenced many times uh, in international discourse on combating climate change. But uh, while they don't say this is who is vulnerable, hmm. you can read between the lines to see which nations and geographies endure the effects of environmental degradation most acutely. Hmm. So from the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which we'll be referring to quite a bit, they write, in the implementation of the commitments in this article, the parties, side note, of which Canada is one of them, shall give full consideration to what actions are necessary under the convention, including actions related to funding, funding, 
insurance, and the transfer of technology to meet the specific needs and concerns of developing country parties arising from the adverse effects of climate change. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Wait, 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 wait. Rising from the adverse effects of climate change? Why? Which is ironic, <laughs> as countries are literally sinking. <laughs> how, do you, how do you rise from something that was not caused by you? Just that, I don't like that verb. Okay. No, this is fully laid out like, oh, like, you know, we're all being affected by climate mm-hmm, change, but mm-hmm. we're so fortunate over here that we're going to, like, help out our little siblings out in the Pacific Ocean mm-hmm. by throwing them some computers and some dollars. And So what they've said is, I threw you into the mud, and now you're covered, and now you're sinking, and so I'm going to throw you a rope and help you rise from these adverse effects that I caused. <laughs> Oh no, but they're not they're not saying that they threw mud. Oh my god, I'm so They're mad. just saying that there that there is mud. There is mud. We have so much rope. Let's give you a string. Uh! This is what's happening, Kristen. Oh my god. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Okay, keep going. Keep going. So some examples of these countries uh, include small island countries, countries with low lying coastal areas, <laughs> countries with arid and semi arid areas forested areas, and areas liable to forest decay, Um, countries with areas prone to natural disasters, um, countries with areas liable to drought and desertification, countries with areas of high urban atmospheric pollution, mm. and countries with areas with fragile ecosystems, including mountainous ecosystems. Mm. So, so the middle of the earth? I'm (laughs) like... (laughs) (laughs) Um, so if you're hearing what I'm hearing, this refers to the geopolitical area that we call the Global South. That's also what I heard. AKA Central and South America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southwest Asia and North Africa, and Central, South, and Southeast Asia. And what do all these nations' geographies have in common? Mm -hmm. They're all places with predominantly non-white and predominantly indigenous and POC populations. Mm -hmm. And to make something explicitly clear... For those who weren't already aware, the places with the most carbon emissions per capita include Australia, the U.S., and Canada at spots three, four, and five, respectively. And these are not the same places that we just listed Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the top. Mm -hmm. Yes, Australia is technically in the Southern Hemisphere. But they don't. Mm -mm. But they're not part Mm -mm. of this. They're not. Although they were in fire, so I mean, we'll we'll, we'll get to this, but... (laughs) It's true. I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. They were devastated. It's true. Yeah. I, I think koalas will never recover. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. But they'll have chlamydia. So I'm like, you know, is it that big of a loss? I don't know. I'm okay, not, a, you I'm know not what? an ecologist. You don't like koalas, though. So I need you <laughs> I need you to let okay, the kids know you, that you don't you, like them. I know they have two have thumbs. Have seen one up close? I know they have two thumbs. I know that's freaking weird. But also, for you to be like, it's sad, but also they have chlamydia. So. Okay. <laughs> <they're>, <laughs> okay. Koalas. Okay, hold on. I need, I need to take this moment mm, to talk about okay. koalas. Okay, okay here, that's what it is. Because one, have you seen one up close? <laughs> I have not. Get real close to one. Why would I do that? Get on Google Images. Blow that photo no, up. No, I don't like to zoom on that, no. Look at their beetle Why? eyes. It ain't right. No wonder you hate them. Why did you zoom in on a picture of a koala? I saw them in real why? life. Okay, I couldn't help it. They're right there. I was in Australia. You know why. Oh. <laughs> I was on my eat, pray, love, but I did not pray. I did not love. And all I ate was Domino's pizza because it was $5. And food, Australia, is so fucking expensive. Why? The people real wages. Which I love, 
by someone who does like a pay to real wage. It's is, also I that you scam through most of your life. So like. Anyway, so koalas, um, yeah, not that cute. They have chlamydia. You think that they'll be like sloths, like real slow. Mm. But if you see them on the ground, no, they run real fast. They're fast. And it is, it's scary. Mm-hmm. No, they're they're fast. Yeah. They have two thumbs. Like, I don't... <laughs> Come on, man. And, and they're marsupials, so they, like, are born at, like, one day old or whatever. Mm. And they basically, like, gestate out in the environment. Mm. And they decided to eat eucalyptus, even though it is toxic. Mm-hmm. So they have to eat the feces of their parent mm-hmm. so that they absorb the enzyme so that they can eat in the which eucalyptus? to eat eucalyptus. Mm-hmm. You know what, though? I appreciate the stubbornness. They said this is toxic, but I don't care. <laughs> this is behavior that we cannot bring into 2021, okay, Kristen? We need to, we need to grow and evolve, okay? <laughs> Look at our past mistakes, see what we can do better, and then do better. I they did. They I, did I'm, see where they could do better. Somebody ate the eucalyptus and died, and they went, if we eat the feces, So they we were like, I'm going to eat my mom. <laughs> so they, they said, I'm going to eat my mama's booty groceries. <laughs> In order to like get this good, good eucalyptus, so that I can be high twenty four seven, and eucalyptus has zero nutritional value, yes. so they have to eat it all day long, yes. and they do get higher and higher, and they can do nothing, which is why when the fires came, they burnt. <laughs> I have no sympathy in this house for koalas. Okay, you don't. You I really get it. Don't. They are a part of the environment. Mm. They are part of the ecosystem. Mm. Okay, biodiversity. These things I know to be important. I know it. I get yeah, it. Yeah, but you can you you want them to be very far away from you. I understand. Yeah, I, I'm not keeping for them, okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Ooh, sorry about that segue, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but y'all need to know, okay? Me and Australia, don't see eye to eye. Uh, but I do feel for them, fires. Um, so we could go into depth about the reasons why areas from the tropics experience most acute effects as a result of the climate change, the climate catastrophe. But, you know, science, uh, we could go into it, but I don't think anyone wants that. NASA says clouds, water vapor, surface albedo, not libido, but albedo, and atmospheric temperature. So we'll just leave it at that for now. Uh, y'all can some do some Googles. Atmospheric sciences is not my particular forte, so I can't even, you know, talk about osmosis or whatever. <laughs> but you did. <laughs> <laughs> but I believe us when we say that our actions here in Canada are literally killing people abroad and furthering systemic inequalities. Mm which we'll also get to um, in this episode. But first, let's circle back to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which Canada ratified in 1992. So even though, as I said, Stephen Harper formally withdrew Canada's participation from the Kyoto Protocol, which was meant to encourage countries to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, Canada is still an Annex I country within the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, meaning it has a duty to help these so-called vulnerable nations via providing funding, insurance, and technology. Currently, Canada is involved in donating money for various climate change combating projects around the world. We'll provide a link in the show notes to check that out. Interestingly, Malaysia, not one of the countries giving aid, but Jamaica and a number of other countries are or have been recipients. Uh, The total pledged amount is $2.65 billion over a period of five years from 2016 to 2020, which is very interesting considering that the examples they provided of aid to Jamaica all predate 2016. Mm. Curious, Mm. curious. Mm. Are they trying to package old donations as a new commitment? Mm. Possibly. Mm. Is this even a significant amount of money? (laughs) 
$530 million a year. I don't know. I'm not an economist. I'm not an ecologist. I said this <laughs> earlier. Anything with, anything with an ist, I'll just... Once one of y'all can let me know, someone who like knows, uh, knows about money. Mm-hmm. Again, five years, two and a half billion dollars. But reminder that the planned spending for the RCMP next year, in the singular year, is $3.2 billion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just think about it. If we were to abolish the police, mm-hmm. how much money would we have to do so many things mm-hmm. with? Think about just that. Think about bring that back. That. Mm. But it is not just quote unquote vulnerable countries over there and over there, over, there. over yonder, over there. We don't see them, you know. We not just here. we just hear about them. Yeah, so it's not just them over there that are disproportionately affected by climate change. So in 2019, last year, a team of 11 researchers published a study, Inequity in Consumption of Goods and Services as to Racial Ethnic Disparities in Air Pollution Exposure. We will link this in the show notes. In it, these researchers point out that it is well known that in the U.S., on average, Black and Latinx communities are disproportionately affected by air pollution caused by white people. So to quantify this, they do science and come up with a pollution inequity metric that is generalizable to other pollution types and provides a simple and intuitive way of expressing a disparity between the pollution people cause and the pollution they're exposed to. Basically, their results showed that Black and Latinx communities in the U.S. are more exposed to pollution from every other emitter group. You might be asking, why? These are the communities more likely to be engaged in factory, agricultural work, mining, transportation, etc. And that puts them at direct increased exposure to air pollutants. Racialized communities also tend to be congregated in dense urban environments where air pollution is also generally higher. Yet, when you look at energy and resource consummation, it's not the working class family living in the city that's burning fossil fuels left, right, and center. It's those who are more affluent, driving SUVs in the suburbs and living in McMansions who are, for the most part, majority white folks. And so, while this is data from the US, not from Canada, given the similarities and parallels between our two societies, we can extrapolate the logic behind this data to think about how these dynamics play out here. So we've talked about it before on the podcast, but who are the ones doing agricultural work, working in transportation, working in factories, working in mining, etc.? By and large, migrant, poor, and racialized communities. This has never been more evident than in 2020 when we see that not only are these groups some of the most affected by COVID, but they are also disproportionately black and brown. And there are so many parallels here with the racism that has been Triple K Canada's COVID response, migrant labor, economic colonialism, and environmental racism. All four are examples of impoverished and racialized communities having to suffer by the hands of the wealthy and the white in order to maintain a particular socioeconomic status quo that is hooked on the exploitation of vulnerable people. We are so sick and tired of this. Like, I hate it here. We say that so often. I hate it here. And I hate seeing how the same structures that exist at the interpersonal level also exist at the community level, at the national level, at the international level. It just, it feels like there's no escape, which is not the mood we are trying to embody right now. No. Ugh. Mm. Ugh. 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 
so tired. So tired. So two things I want to talk about before we close up the episode. One, so climate refugees, right? We, so we see this already happening in certain, certain respects. We cannot really remove politics from the environment. Mm-hmm. And when a community, when a country, a region is severely impacted by rapidly changing climates and climate devastation, this affects the way politics are able to proceed within a country. It affects the ways that politicians or the governments are able to stabilize their own countries, mm-hmm. their own economies. And... If you have environmental instability, it is very difficult to also have political stability. Mm-hmm. Therefore, this is when we see civil unrest, we see transnational conflicts, we see land possession, like we see people having to be evicted from their homes because of either political or uh, climate instability. Mm-hmm. And again, who is causing most of these problems? <laughs> it's us. It's the West. <laughs> and so where do these people go? Where can they go? Mm-hmm. Again, we talked about it before, most of them do not actually come here. Mm-hmm. They go to neighboring countries. But then people here have the audacity to be mad at the refugee problem, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, again, y'all did this, okay? Like our complicity, like, I... like our involvement in capitalism and supporting as a country fossil fuel production still in 2020. Like we are, we are doing this. And again, it is Canada's duty as part of the UNFCC to help out these nations. And yes, taking them in as refugees is not part of the convention. But that can be part of the aid that they are, that they have agreed to do. Mm -hmm. They have agreed to do this. Mm -hmm. Maybe instead of sending them money, actually send them support, Mm -hmm. okay? And some of that support can be sponsoring them to come here. And again, they don't want to. They would rather live their lives in their countries of origin. However, we have fucked up the world so badly that they're unable to do that and they're forced to migrate elsewhere. Thank you. I think that's also part of this arc that we're like on right now because, yeah, you're going to give them money, but you're giving them money to an economy that owes debt to the IMF as system that you've already created. So they're not actually able to do the domestic things that they need to do to make life sustainable so that people don't leave. Like I, you're fucking them up on multiple levels. How can you be mad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, I'm sure that most of the money, too, that gets, or not, I mean, not most, but a lot of the money that goes out, you know, in quote-unquote aid, gets absorbed through administrative mm-hmm. costs, never actually get to the people who need mm-hmm. it. How are you going to, I don't know, build that dam that they need so that they can live in this area if they don't have the political anything, the administrative anything to make sure that a dam even gets built or a construction company that, you know, is owned domestically and not internationally so that they can build this thing or a domestic construction company that doesn't already owe money to people like their government, like the IMF, because they needed that money to even get going. Like I confused. Or if you're an island nation and you're literally sinking, Mm. how much money is it going to take to get you afloat, Mm. literally afloat? Mm. Because sand is also a finite resource and it's... We can have a whole episode about sand. Mm. It's actually like really fascinating, but yeah, island nations not doing Mm-mm. so good. Definitely not. And so, one last big topic we need to talk about before we can end is the exploitation of land for white and Western gain and profit at the expense of local and indigenous communities. Mm, yes. We talked about this in our episode on economic colonialism, but Canada and by extension us as consumers who are imbued by capitalism, whether we like it or mm. not are complicit in the brutal exploitation of land and resources around the world, 
all of this, they could profit and so that we could have nice things for cheap. Not even necessarily for cheap, so we can have nice things, period. There are so many examples, but one particularly insidious example is what is going on in the Democratic Republic of Congo mm. with cobalt mining, which has been linked to not only a massive environmental damage, but also child labor practices. Uh, if you're not familiar, cobalt, uh, which is a very finite mineral and not widely found globally, is used to make lithium-ion batteries that you find in your computer, phone, airplanes, hybrid cars. So, as you can imagine, demand is only increasing, while supply is only decreasing, which makes it ever more valuable, meaning companies and countries will do whatever they can to get it, no matter the cost human or environmental. Mm -hmm. And this is a really good example of the link between environmental instability with political instability. Does this whole situation for the race for cobalt sound familiar? Mm. Mm. Oh, yes. Oil, that thing that we talked about right at the beginning of the episode. Mm. So, Canada, we all remember the tar sands, right? Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, I guess they're still there. Mm. But all of that massive destruction (laughs) for what? For what? For money. I mean, for money. And now that the money is no longer there, mm. whoops, I guess. Ugh, right? Ugh. But you know what? I guess it's fine, you know? It was all just empty, unused land anyway. Oh, oh wait. I forgot. Like, Hannah loves to do. That this is all indigenous territory. Mm. This is all treaty territory. Mm. Right, right. The thing that KKK Canada loves to pretend does not exist. No. The fact is, these are sacred lands the state has decided to violate treaty rights for in order to maintain the comforts of capitalism that settlers decided to establish. Mm. And this is a huge aspect of environmental racism that gets glossed over and why indigenous leaders and activists need to be at the forefront of the climate justice movement. There's a a tweet that I keep seeing, something along the lines of it's crazy that they can get pipes through indigenous land, but they cannot get pipes for water to indigenous land. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, just look at the number of water boil advisories that mm. you know we have in Canada. Like truly, like two different nations like, that we are living clearly. in. Clearly, it's disgusting. So, indigenous communities have been the ones to live harmoniously with the lands and waters since time immemorial. Their philosophies teach us to treat the environment with respect and with agency, something KKK Canada doesn't know anything nope. about. And it's not only the tar sands where this is happening. The pipelines. Restricted hunting and fishing across the country, mining operations and factories being placed next to reserves, or reserves being placed next to factories, Mm. and not to mention the land and water pollution that these factories and mining operations cause. Also, the whole thing with man camps and missing and murdered indigenous women to speed and girls. Mm -hmm. So fucked up. Especially non-COVID. Stop. Please. Like, I I just... God, I'm not done with this list. Seismic blasting up north, which has disrupted aquatic animals' migrations, a.k.a. the main food source for northern communities, mm. where, like, an apple costs, like, $17. Mm-hmm. It's fucking wild. And this is a global issue, too, with political land seizure for, quote-unquote, economic development. Do they even know what that means? They want to build condos in the rainforest. I don't know. Some bullshit like that. <sighs> but we see this all over the Amazon and uh, Central South America. The Amazon was also burning this year. Okay, so apparently this is like this is something that I learned that the image that we saw of the Amazon burning was it not an image from this year? Oh. But I think it was burning. That just wasn't the right photo. I don't know. Media literacy. We we all yeah. need to. Yeah, we, we need we need ugh. more of that. Okay, sorry to yeah. derail you there. But yes, deforestation and clear cutting is happening across the tropics, as well as agricultural bio warfare to kill native ugh. crops. 
so that corporations can have monopolies over food being produced. Mm. Mm. We we <sighs> could go on, but I don't know. I'm tired. Prakash, are you tired? I'm so tired. Yeah. yeah. So what are we going to do about this? I think we have four four takeaways. So I'll do the first two. So number one, uh, realize the ways your actions might be having larger impacts. Smaller changes can actually make a big difference. Number two, don't let this be the be all end all. Okay, so just because you use a water bottle now instead of replacing water bottles, that is not don't stop there. Keep doing more things. So we're not trying to like come for vegans, but that is one change that has certain positive benefits, like the reduction of methane produced, water consumed. But in Canada, there is still an environmental cost with the transportation and exploitative labor practices that resulted in the bulk of your produce being made available. You need to take your actions further and see how you can impact not only individual, but systemic changes. So what does this look like? Harassing your local elected officials for policy changes. Mm. Advocate for your MPP to bring up these issues in Parliament. Mm. Demand for a better environmental response and action plan. Mm. The Green Party shouldn't be the only one with a robust environmental platform. No, that's ridiculous. We should all be concerned about this. This is a non-person yep. issue. We, we all have to live in this world. And it's not going to last much longer if you continue down this yep. road. And number four, support local and national indigenous-led land and water protection mm. efforts. Give them your time, money, flood your feeds with it so it cannot be ignored. From a legal framework, they have rights that should be protected under the law, and that is maybe our best chance at assuring local environmental protections. Mm. So, even though we've probably had two dozen collective sighs in this episode, there is hope and some positive statistics we saw in terms of pollution reduction in recent years. Also, COVID has shown how concerted efforts into social change can be reparative, environmentally speaking. I know that we're all broken. (laughs) So broken. But the environment, she's doing better. (laughs) Minimally. Still so much made to go. But this is a time for radical change. We just need to keep pushing. Stay in the know. Bye. Bye. You can find us on these here internets, on the social medias, at the handle DoTheKidsKnow or at DoTheKidsKnow.ca. You can subscribe to our monthly newsletter at tinyletter.com slash DoTheKidsKnow and visit our Patreon to show your appreciation with one-time or monthly tips. If you've got questions, comments, or concerns, email us at DoTheKidsKnow at gmail.com. And finally, please rate, review, and subscribe. That helps other kids stay in the know. In the implementation of the communities. Nope. <laughs> you have so many outtakes from this episode. <laughs> I just gonna release it exactly as is, and you know, it is it is what it is. It is what it is. This is why we can't be live. <laughs> we can't read what we fucking wrote. <laughs> We God. all just need to like go to sleep till 2022. That's when that's what needs to happen. <laughs>